Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 12 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton. This week has been a devastating one. There's no other way to put that. We never thought we'd be bringing you an episode in the wake of a tragic terror attack. In a tale that we are all now very familiar with, on Monday night at an Ariana Grande concert at the Manchester Arena, 22 people were killed by a suicide bomber and 59 injured. At the time of recording, eight people are still missing, including teenagers Chloe Rutherford, who is 17, and Liam Curry, who is 19. Obviously, any terrorist attack is always tragic and a desperately awful, sad thing. But I think there's something particularly disturbing and distressing and horrifying about the fact it was at a concert that was predominantly for young girls. Mm. Um did you read the piece Alexis Petridis, who's the Guardian mm, music yeah, yeah, critic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm familiar, but no, I haven't. I haven't read that. He read this piece um, that was very moving, that was coming at the story kind of from a different angle, talking about the horror unfolding in the context of it being a pop concert. And he t- told a story about when he's got two young daughters and he mm-hmm. told a story about taking his daughter to a Jessie J concert, her, one of her first pop concerts. And he said, you know that kind of environment represents joy and the forming of a young identity and finding your people. And the closing paragraph, he said, giving people their first taste of freedom and independence, that strikes me as something at the top of the chart of incredible things music can do. It's also something that the kind of people who manipulate others into blowing themselves up in public places hate. It's undoubtedly a very odd and awful situation for Ariana Grande as well, the pop star who everyone had gathered to see. Um, I quite agree with some of the comments I've seen, which is it's not as awful for her as it is for the families who have lost someone. No one should suggest that. Certainly, certainly, but the weight of guilt must be... The way she has been inserted into the story, I think she's dealt with it admirably. Um, She tweeted... Broken from the bottom of my heart. I'm so, so sorry. I don't have words. And she's since been arriving back home, launching herself into the arms of her boyfriend, crying. She's reportedly offered to pay for the victim's funerals. I don't know if that's substantiated or if any of them are taking her up on it. Um, And then there's been some interesting kind of news shared about celebrities and how they've reacted Um, in the context of doing these big pop concerts, which obviously makes both them and the fans very vulnerable. So Katy Perry and Lord have not cancelled their UK gigs. They've said they're not going to. Justin Bieber is under pressure to cancel his. I don't know why he's under more pressure than them. Um, But there have been some particularly distasteful headlines, I think. So the Evening Standard 
headline on Tuesday was Slaughter of Ariana Innocence. And I think the way she was inserted between slaughtered and mm-hmm. innocence was um, just not responsible, no. if I'm honest. I really, really don't don't like the way that was billed. There was a particularly galling and offensive headline on the Mail Online um, that I just... I, the minute I saw it, I just came out and I just thought, this is exactly why I don't go on this website anymore. That was an op-ed that said something like, Ariana Grande's revealing sexualized outfits represent everything Islamists hate. Well, of course they represent everything that fundamentalists hate because they also hate people having fun, women making independent choices, socialising, dating, wearing what they want. Like, do you know what I mean? The list but goes to, on. But to link that as a, some sort of cause of no, blame. No, what, what I mean is it's a complete non-starter. Yeah, of, yeah, a, yeah, of, yeah. Course they, of course they hate her outfits. That's nothing new. And um, whether or not they're sexualised. I don't know. I don't know if I... It's difficult. If I saw that headline on a different publication, it wouldn't necessarily hit me in the same way that you reading on the Daily Mail has because you're right the revealing it's shaming isn't it revealing sexualised it's shaming if it was Ariana Grande's skimpy outfits enraged Islamists I, I don't know if I would find that necessarily offensive because they are skimpy she's on stage she's hot she's a young girl I think it's the, it's it's the, it's the, the bit, subtext of it. yeah you're, exactly it's coming from the misogynistic recess yes, no, of the internet that, that is yeah. the Daily Mail I mean I think this has been a really I've, I, the aftermath of this story has been uh, interesting in terms of the media there was a particularly interesting series of tweets that got a huge response on Twitter and I posted on both my Twitter feed and the Hilo so do have a read and it's from a doctor who had previously witnessed a terror attack um, she doesn't say which one and she warned about the media's role in post-traumatic stress disorder so she's got the handle Dr M underscore 79 she tweeted these were a series of tweets when I was caught up in a terrorist incident four years ago the behaviour of UK media made the trauma so much worse they don't seem to have changed I've seen journalists from major news organisations outside hospital waiting to interview people leaving, asking witnesses for more and more detail. News organisations need to consider their role in causing post-traumatic stress disorder. There is evidence on this. Part of the trauma is caused in the aftermath by response. In the face of terror, people suffer but are strong. Emergency services and others are incredible. Media could help rather than traumatise. She then goes on to list all the things the media did to her and her family to try and get a story after a terrorist attack. They hacked my Facebook, turned up on my mum's door, doorstep, repeatedly called and doorstepped her before she knew if I was okay, repeatedly called the emergency number at the hospital where I worked, called elderly relatives who didn't know I was abroad and told them that I had been caught up in a terrorist incident. They repeatedly called a mental health helpline where I volunteered on their emergency number. They used personal Facebook accounts to try and friend me, turned up at my house for days, called my phone so much that I could not access it, meaning I had to turn it off, meaning I couldn't access support from friends and family. I mean, this is horrific and as as a journalist, I'm I'm galled and I'm I'm ashamed to read this. And after I read all that, I saw a tweet from someone who was in Manchester and it was just a note from a, a journalist saying, sorry to write to you today, but please call me. And then his business card was attached to the note. And I, the thing is, is being a journalist like you are, I know that the news desk has a job to do. And I know from experience that the news desk is a highly pressurised dog-eat-dog world. Mm. But Jesus, it's pause mm. for thought, that, isn't it? I know. I mean, I'm lucky that I've never been coerced into that 
form of doorstepping or that form of journalist. But I know a lot of my contemporaries have, and I know it really haunts them. It can be hard to know what to say, leaving the media aside, certainly. Um, I know that you and I were very careful when we were talking about this today because the last thing we want to do is to um, trigger anyone it's, it's, or add... It's delicate. Or, yeah, or add further upset. Um, but sometimes it's pretty obvious what not to say. Um, case in point, Kim Kardashian's tweet. Concerts are supposed to be a place where you can let loose and have fun, she tweeted. It's so scary not to feel safe in this world. Ariana Grande, I love you. Quite right, concerts are supposed to be a place where you can let loose and have fun. But she also put a picture of herself grinning at a concert. Anyway, the backlash was very intense. And she deleted her tweets. She definitely posted in good faith of that, I'm sure. But when you're as divisive as she is, um, and you already are going to get criticised for everything you do, inserting a picture of yourself with her Ariana Grande, I love you, mm. into a massacre is is a bad decision so, how, how do you how do you respond to a crisis without having a bad news day so here's some nice picture of me like Kim Kardashian someone tweeted yesterday I don't know who it was I think it was a comedian saying ask yourself do I need to say anything and do I need to say it now and I think that is something we all need to be asking ourselves in the wake of a tragedy you know a national incident particularly when we're so used to having this kind of unboundaried, undammed stream of consciousness that's constantly recorded. Um, so a trend that I've noticed that I was particularly sensitive to yesterday and I found very difficult is in the wake of a of a disaster, people will go on Twitter or on social media and say, oh, this awful thing has happened, blood has been shed, people are in turmoil. But let's remember that life is good and then post a picture of themselves grinning on holiday or I actually saw someone yesterday tweet saying it's hard to remember the good in life today but it's my wedding anniversary with my husband and I just thought just shut up like just shut up you know this is so unhelpful and it's not it's so reductive and it's a distillation of everything that's bad about social media it's so self-obsessed and I think you know, I understand I understand wanting to lift spirits and remember the goodness in humanity in the wake of those tragedies. But the goodness in humanity is not like an anniversary with a husband or a new lipstick or you grinning at a concert. That's just fucking irrelevant. And I think there's this great Fred Rogers quote where he said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. And I think that's to illuminate good things that are happening within a crisis I completely understand the value in that but I do think it is completely crass and self-obsessed to somehow link it to a personal story of your own happiness or levity on the day I think so I think yesterday I tweeted something from the high lows and from mine just saying you know Manchester you're in our thoughts and prayers that kept pretty simple and I didn't put anything out on social media and then last night at about midnight I put up a picture of a friend and I at a party and I really thought about it I thought god is is this really insensitive and I'm sure some people will think it was actually but I did it because my mantra on it is like you say don't use it as a springboard to celebrate exactly. yourself 
Celebrate yourself entirely separately. Exactly. So (laughs) I've got no problem. So I didn't go. Today's been really shitty, but here I am with some fried chicken. I just thought I've expressed my sentiment. I am, as a sentient human being, devastated by this. But if anyone's going to believe that me going to a work party last night is indicative of me not giving a fuck when terrorist rows up children, then that's not the kind of person I want to be having a civilized conversation with. Anyway, the important thing is is that you didn't say oh, somehow me wearing, like, a sexy dress, eating fried chicken at a party is going to, like, make people forget about the barbaric tragedy of because yesterday. Because go me. Yeah, exactly. Like, but as I said, can I just also say that I'm sure lots of people didn't think it was correct to put anything out at all. I'm sure some people even thought it wasn't OK for me to put that out last night. I think, ultimately, it, it does come down to a personal judgment. But also, the other thing as well, sorry, I had a bit of an outburst about the people doing the whole look at like how great my life no I understand but you know I also understand that I'm sure I have have made mistakes and not known how to react to things sensitivity is a it's a it's a minefield I think in knowing how uh, uh, do you know what this maybe this is something we should be grateful for that we're learning this now that's it you know we haven't had this is brand new the internet you know this is as in it's not no but also that that terrorism attacks the awfulness of them is something that we still don't know how to navigate. And frankly, I'd rather that we had some clunky um, social media navigation mm-hmm. than we had become so au fait with terrorist attacks that we knew exactly how to respond no, exa- to them. And also it's the, you know, John Ronson um, really made me rethink when I read all his work about public shaming. Oh, you know, God. When you're, when you're ha- constantly, as I said, doing this public stream Amazing of consciousness, of course you're going to get things wrong sometimes and you're not defined by your mistakes. So, like... You know, we're all learning as we go what the appropriate but also it's, way is it's, to behave in these situations. It's a consistent tone, I think, with social media. So there is no, there's no space, or there's no room or accommodation for nuance and um, intent. There is no. Yes. It's it is seen literally isolated. You can't contextualize. You can't intellectualize. It's just the words on the page, and yeah. that's why a lot of kind of quite, you know, jokes that cusp on bad taste are not ones that I would ever put on Twitter. No, no. There was an interesting... I've been watching a lot of... Well, as you know, I watch a lot of Good Morning Britain anyway, and it was actually devastating to watch Susanna Reid trying to read it out the next morning, and she Mm. just sort of kept breaking down in tears and then being quite furiously embarrassed with herself like it wasn't her tragedy to, mm. to mourn and she's going I'm so sorry it doesn't help anyone when I do this and Kate Garraway just goes Susanna you know don't it's apologize we're, all, we're yeah. all feeling it and what they were saying is they were they were talking to someone and I'm sorry I should know I should know who it was but they were talking to someone and they said you know the security threat has now been elevated from severe to critical as you as you say um what does that mean for for everyone? That's quite terrifying. And the response was, which I I found um, quite soothing, was this happens a lot. You you just don't know. You know the amount that's going on, the amount that's blocked. I remember someone told me that nine terror attacks yeah. that never even reached the public were yeah, blocked yeah, last yeah. year. And last time it was blocked. To, that I think possibly after the last terror attack we had in the UK, mm-hmm. they elevated it to critical just for five days. Well, five that's what Jonathan only. Freeland said so in his article. So it's not going to be for years. Yeah, he said he, he anticipates that it won't be like France, like Paris. He said that he thinks it will be, it will be short I mean, none term. none of us really fucking know, do we? You can only no, hope. but that's the thing as well that you have to, you know, it's very difficult to know how to behave in times like this. And as we've said, it's a very sensitive thing 
to talk about because it's, it's religion. It's, it's easy to, but also it's easy to say, let's go on as we were. But I think everyone woke up feeling different today, you know, and it's, it's, the reality is, I was thinking today, I was like, well, do, should I take the tube? Is that something? You well, know, see, weirdly, I took the tube unthinkingly because I felt like Manchester was really far away, which is sheer idiocy on my part because it's not, it's not far, it's not removed. But for some really odd reason, I felt different about the underground than if the attack had been in London. I felt that I'm a very anxious person anyway with this stuff and I can, I can let that really colour all my thoughts. And I think the important thing, the whole platitude of carry on as we were, what we must take from that is we mustn't let it colour or taint our view of the Muslim community and we mustn't allow for knee-jerk racism. So to end, how can we help? Manchester Evening News have started a Just Giving page that has now raised over 1.1 million um, in under two days to support families of those killed and injured. It's very easy to do. We tweeted the link last night. You can do it via PayPal. There's also a charity called Human Appeal, raising money for victims and the victims' families um, in an appeal called Muslims for Manchester. They are a Muslim faith-based humanitarian aid charity based in Greater Manchester. They help people in need all across the world and here in the UK. We will tweet the link to that page as well. Back to the typical frothy fair of the high low. This is episode 12. What have been your high lows of this week, Dolly? Actually, I'm going to tell you my low, which was being told by everyone I've ever met and everyone I haven't met how hilarious it is that I don't know... Who's in the lighthouse family? I think I've never, we've never received more messages than about that one gaffe. It's odd that people seem to hold that close. I mean, that it can provide that me. Do you know what I mean? I think if I made a mistake about someone in the cause, people loved it. People loved it. My dad was in the pub talking to my mum about it, and he was like, "God, it was funny, Barbara." God, it was the funniest thing I've ever heard. I mean, Dolly were vaguely insulted. The radio. Like, we've done funnier things. It's like, surely we, I've been, we've been funnier when we've tried to be I, consciously I, funny. I liked We Will Make Breakfast Great Again much more. I know, that's way funnier. Anyway, it was, it, it was my gaff. Give the people what they want. I know, they anyway. They loved it. So apparently much funnier than Frankie Dottori, who, yes, I gather from Twitter, a lot of you don't know who he is. <laughs> so Dolly is kind of um, validated by that. So, okay, my week. I have rediscovered eBay in a really big way. Welcome. So I was a huge eBay. What's your rating? I bet I've done more transactions. Oh, um, I've how many got, number? I can't remember. It's really good, but there's yeah, I've got a really oh, high rating. Can't remember. But there's one review. There's one review um, that I still love that was back from like 2009, where <laughs> a user said they felt that I'd led them on. <laughs> I had a terrible argument once over a five pound postage. I was in a swimming pool. And um, this argument was raging on and on. I remember just wanting to throw my phone in the pool because this this woman from eBay had made me want to end my phone's life. I thought you were going to say throw yourself in the pool. And I would say Panda, or even for you, that's a little bit. I was already traumatic. in it. I was on my phone <laughs> in the pool. Um, so I've, I've, yeah, I haven't been on eBay that much in the last few years. I was using Etsy or ASOS Marketplace for my vintage steals. I check eBay every morning. But as we know, it has got very, very hot. It's got very hot. We love talking about how hot it's got. It's got very hot. And I wanted tea dresses and I thought, I know what I want. I want Kate Moss for Topshop and I want it now. I've got an alert for that. Well, I bought, bought the red eBay. poppy wraparound dress. Got that one. 
And I bought the classic Kate Moss tea dress. With the yellow flowers? No, the classic one, the really short one that she wore with black patent ballet pumps. I can't remember that one. Well, you're a heathen then. I don't believe you were ever a fan. (laughs) But this was particularly nostalgic for me because the Kate Moss for Topshop, there were four collections. Ask me anything, anything. It is my trivia category. So there were four collections of this. And the first one that came up, and I remember the hype was unbelievable. And I was 19 and I was at Leeds University and I set my alarm for 4am. I went alone. I did not need people dragging me down. I went alone and I walked into town. It was a long walk. It was 45 minutes and there were people coming back from the clubs. And they were like, where are you going? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to see someone. I'd actually been asleep for four hours. I'd set my alarm. I got in the queue, got my wristband, queued till 7am, got in, got five tea dresses. And this was at a time when it was less rank to do this than it is now. Kept one tea dress, sold the other four, made myself 400 quid in two days. My God. Big big success. Anyway, they came up quite small and I accrued eight dresses from Kate Moss for Topshop that were passed all around my friends. We've all got memories. We've all got pictures of us doing our makeup really badly, wearing our hair really badly in a Kate Moss for Topshop dress. And they just went passed around and passed around. And eventually I ended up with just one left in my cupboard I even sold the amazing kind of black cage one so I love that one I've got an alert for that one oh, I sold them all with um, the silk by the neck so I've re-bought these two and they really are the perfect fucking tea dresses uh, they're especially incredible they're, if they you're, fit so well and especially if you're short they are because they are really short they're very short um, I had so, to give that red one to my flatmate so actually. I've had a good week so I bought those two so I feel really happy I spent £150 which is cheap but the joy of I eBay mix. is the people who don't know the value of what they have in the back of and their the cupboard and the joy and the joy of vintage shopping is occasionally you come across a superlative fit that I would I would pay way more than that for that red denim skirt I'll wear it for you next week with my Gucci belt okay. it's exceptional also this week I watched the absolutely phenomenal BBC three-parter, Three Girls, about the Rochdale paedophile ring. Uh, did you watch that, doll? Yeah, I watched it in one sitting. Did you not think it was, like, it took my breath away. Mm. I tried to tweet about it, and I just tweeted, oh my God, Maxine Peake, goddess, mm. these these women, these girls, this this what the BBC has done. And I noticed that I was not one of the only people who was desperate to somehow say something, but just couldn't kind of formulate words. There were other journalists who were just like, oh God, oh God, this is it was, amazing. It was deeply affecting and it's the British telly at its like absolute best completely it was the performances of the girls particularly the girl who played Ruby that I found oh my god Ruby very very um, moving I mean you, you felt like you were straying into like an observational doc at some point Paul Kay as Holly's father was also sorry sweetie Paul Kay as Holly's father I thought was also um very, very affecting to watch. Mm. He did an amazing job, I thought, in that of viewing his little girl as a... Viewing his daughter as by turns a little girl and by other turns as someone highly sexual that he didn't understand or know Yeah, and it was, very, it was very disturbing, I think. Actually, that's not right at all. She's not highly sexual. Someone that had become highly sexualised. Yeah. Well, there's that line in it, isn't there, when Maxine Peake's character, Sarah Rebotham, says, there's no such thing as a child prostitute, only a child that's being abused. Apparently, Maxine Peake, I read afterwards, had went to spend a lot of time with Sarah Rebotham to really kind of... And she said the minute that she went in to meet her, she said, 
I love this woman and I and she knew that she could capture who she was. And did you see that she was the real Sarah Botham was on first dates last night? No. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah, and people are caught people are calling now that did she be publicly awarded rewarded for her work. She bloody well should. Crime. She was this is not quite this is a this is a sort of clunky comparison, but she is like the Erin Brockovich of She's a whistleblower. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you see at the end as well when at the credits, um, slowly all these different names of where child paedophile gangs had been uncovered in the UK mm. and it amounted to about sixty different places. Mm. Absolutely. It's horrible. a very disturbing but very powerful Equally Watch. troubling and powerful is the essay in The Atlantic that has been doing the rounds that we tweeted off our Instagram that both Dolly and I were not sideways by. It is called My Family Slave and it's by Alex Tizon. It's the perfect long read. It's the most beautifully constructed, powerful story. And it's very powerful and it is about a writer who was born in the Philippines and moved to America at a young age with his three siblings and his mother and his father. And with them they bought who he believed at that age to be his nanny. It transpired as he becomes older that she is the family's slave. She's not paid. Um, she's not given any time off. She sleeps in corners. She's not allowed to go back to the Philippines. And, and she spent her entire life working as their slave. Yeah, since she was, what, 14? As his mother's, as his mother's slave, and then, and I don't want to give too much of it away because some of the most shocking things about it are some of the most beautifully written bits. Um, Alex died the day after his essay came out. And the Atlantic released a statement saying, you know, this essay is only out because the family of Alex was so um, kind and helpful in allowing us to publish this. Mm posthumously um, but there's been a backlash which I, I kind of feel really annoyed been a backlash? I feel really annoyed when there's a backlash like this when someone's done something really um, they've they've made themselves very vulnerable they've admitted and that they're ad- culpable he completely admits his culpability and also it. he's a very interesting voice to the conversation of how of, of slavery in the Philippines how it's viewed then how it's even viewed now and the very complex I had no idea about mm-hmm. tier system in which one used to acquire slaves I mean the backlash is he's really guilty he should be punished and it's like well he's died so well done for doing all your reading um, so. but also it's a story of trying to atone for his family's sins as well and if you don't understand that in the intention then you just haven't read it properly I don't think it's a brilliant brilliant essay it is on our Twitter we it's about 20 minutes to read. I would really take 20 minutes we're to read We're also going to start doing some podcasts that I love do this. So we're going to start putting in the bio each week. You just click to see more on iTunes, wherever you're listening. In the bio each week, we're going to list the articles, books, TV shows, um, anything that we've talked about that we've been enjoying that week because we get asked a lot. And I don't want to sound impatient. If you still can't find them after that, you're still tweeting us saying, where can you find the links? I will get angry. <laughs> but also, we have a Goodreads account as well. Yes. We have set up our Goodreads account. The th- I think the thing we forget is that a lot of people who listen to the podcast don't, don't follow us on Twitter, which is a goddamn shame because we are fine, finer than a fine wine. <laughs> um, and we tweet a lot of stuff that we love there, which is why perhaps we neglect elsewhere. So that's why we'll start putting in our bio all of the kind of cultural 
signposting whatever wanky way you want to say that we do but our goodreads account it's literally if you just look for the hilo um we've registered as the hilo and we have i think we're the hilo show hilo show and we've put all of the books that we have loved all that are on our that we're currently reading and all that are on our shelf to be read and we will update that as much as we can if you're like why has the shelf not moved for two weeks it's because we've been busy (laughs) and we're not reading as much as we'd like to i am actually reading a completely wonderful book at the moment an advanced copy of the journalist Elizabeth Day's um, book which is out in July called The Party and I'm I'm gulping it down and I can't wait to lend it to you Dolly. Do you know what I'm reading now? What are you reading? Nothing. <laughs> you know why? Because I'm writing a book? Because I'm watching Downton Abbey. Oh my god still! <laughs> India staged an intervention yesterday. She said it's got to stop. <laughs> I just the more anxious what I get. What you want? Oh I've only got two left Panda. Too serious. Did you not get my video last night of me saying it's nearly, I'm running out? No, I didn't watch it. <laughs> India <laughs> said, stop sending me videos of you watching Downton Abbey. <laughs> um, the closer my deadline for my book comes, the more anxious I get and the more I need to if run into could, the arms of 1920s could, England. If you could buy cast members of Downton Abbey like you can of So Solid Crew for a party, would you buy them? Miss Patmore. For them to... To come and talk Be- you to sleep in your room. Yeah, I would, yeah. I get Mrs. Patmore. Okay, so for Mrs. Patmore, <laughs> from writing your book, have you got any other highlights from the week? Uh, well, I've been at home for the last week, um, getting some writing done. I was in Gloucestershire, had such a dreamy time. I kept going on all these lovely long walks and runs. And then you kept tweeting on highlights Twitter. <laughs> I just listened to back-to-back old Desert Island Discs episode. God, I listened to Diana at Hills. Have you ever listened to hers? No, I want to. I posted it on the Hilo's account. It's a wonderful tale of a woman who was a hopeless romantic in her youth and how she became a, a much more contented pragmatist on the outlook of love. Um, and it was just, I just had the loveliest time. I had a real moment where I was picking some wild garlic in my mum's garden to make some wild garlic pesto. And I just thought... I will be ready for retirement one day. Do you ever have those moments? All the time. When I'm lying in the bath reading my book. Mm. When, when I'm, you're like, come at me, it's fine. When I'm deep cleaning the saucepans. <laughs> How do you deep clean them? You really put some welly into it. You get tennis elbow. That's when you know you've really cleaned the saucepans. <laughs> Ollie does not really clean the saucepans. Um, I also went to a wedding for my friends Meg and Henry. And it was quite awe-inspiring because Meg is a candidate in the general election. Wow. So not only has she, she literally went from her wedding to back to campaigning up in Birmingham this week, which is is just like amazing that she managed to pull together a wedding, you know, while all this is happening. So what party is she? She's conservative. So we're different politically, but I have nothing but admiration for her hard work. And she's, you know, we're not all that different, actually, morally, where we, you know, cross Mm -hmm. on things. And that's where I think... I don't want to be one of those Tory bashing liberals because I'm friends with a lot of them. And she's just a very inspiring person, I think. But anyway, so the highlight of the wedding for me, other than obviously watching them make beautiful vows to each other, is um, I started a conga line on the dance floor that was so successful, Pandora, that it came to a standstill. (laughs) because everyone joined oh my god it was like snake you know when snake eats itself that's what happened it like there was nowhere for it to go in the market (laughs) so that was my highlight of the last week was starting my most successful conga line today 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now time for the top line. This is the third week of running our new segment where one of us reads 10 pieces of news in 90 seconds with a crescendo of a sound effect that <laughs> may sound a bit like we stole it from Countdown, but uh, only if you listen very carefully. So, Pandora, hit me with the top line. God, I'm already sweating my tits off. <laughs> this is the Hilo's top line. A teenager in Mexico called Julian Rios Cantu has developed a prototype bra that could detect breast cancer through thermal sensors. Wow. The teenager now has 15 employees but is still in high school. The bra will be available in Europe next year. Clint Eastwood said we have lost our cultural sense of humour. Speaking from the Cannes Film Festival, he said, we're in this era where everyone thinks it's politically incorrect. We're killing ourselves. We've lost our sense of humour. A man with a knife has been arrested outside Buckingham Palace on Wednesday. Please do not think it is terrorist related. His identity has not yet been revealed, but no one was injured. Former Bond actor Sir Roger Moore has died aged 89. A 21-year-old waitress has been fired from Chilton Firehouse for enjoying a sexathon with Orlando Bloom. Orlando has since apologised to Viviana Ross on behalf of his penis. Julian Assange has said he will remain inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London in order to avoid extradition to the United States, despite being told he no longer faces a sex investigation by the Swedish authorities. The non-royal royal wedding, said to cost one million, took place in a giant greenhouse and the bride wore Giles. Much has been made of the best man speech where Justin Johansson likened Pippa to a loyal dog. <laughs> Stop press. M&S are adding bananas to their fruit salad. Bananas are the most wasted fruit, with 160 million bananas thrown away each year due to browning. M&S have developed a new process to slow the browning. A couple dubbed the Richard and Judy of local radio had sex in front of schoolboys in the woodland and encouraged them to come and have a play, reports the Telegraph. Former BBC broadcaster Julie Wadsworth, 60, is alleged to have worn a split skirt and no knickers as she had sexual activity with her 69-year-old husband Tony in full view of youngsters. Brandon Vesmar from Texas is suing a woman for $17. This is the best one. $17 after she texted during their movie date. It was the first date from hell, he said, not at all dramatically. It is his pet peeve. This is the high-low, and that was the top line. (laughs) Um, That was a good little selection, Pandora. I enjoyed those. Anything you'd like to discuss? I would like to discuss... um, Orlando Bloom's sexathon, you filthy animal. (laughs) No, I'd actually like to discuss... um, Kate Middleton's outfit at Pippa's wedding. I think everyone thinks that we're going to talk about the non-royal royal wedding as one of our topics, and we are not because we don't really have anything to say. No, but all I will say is, first of all, I friggin' loved that greenhouse idea, and second, hot. Dolly. I did think that. I did think it. Must Dolly, be very you would hot. be sweating. You'd melt. It's so beautiful. I love that whole Victorian conservatory. You'd absolutely thing. melt. Do you know what I also liked is how incredibly stupid a lot of people seem to be. They kept referring to Prince Harry as Pippa Middleton's sister-in-law. They're not sister-in-law. <laughs> Kate Middleton is his sister-in-law. Didn't you love her outfit, Kate Middleton? I, honestly, I didn't. I I have not looked. Oh, the tables have turned. Why? Because I can't believe I'm telling you about what a celebrity was wearing. <laughs> no, I saw 
what she was wearing. It was nudie. She's very pretty. It looked like a kind of Aussie Clark floaty thing. Oh, that's why you like. I it. just loved it, and I looked at it. And I thought that is like because I've never really loved Kate Middleton's style, and I thought that is perfect peak Kate Middleton. She can wear that all the time. It looked so elegant and lovely. Someone would have made it for her. I yeah, I like couldn't find like the design. I couldn't see who it was by. Googling that instead of writing your book. <laughs> Literally anything. Um, also, I loved Grace Scent did a very funny piece that we tweeted on our, on the High Lows account about uh, middle-class bridezillas ruining your life. And she said one of the details that she loved is that Spencer Matthews, um, apparently in the surface, read a passage from The Alchemist. <laughs> oh, my God. No, the only thing that I'm particularly obsessed with is how... James Matthews, the groom, and Pippa live in a house in like Little Bolton's or Belgravia or somewhere worth 17 million, and he's 37 years old. I want to know how the motherfucking fuck he made 17 million, how I can make 17 million. Clearly, it's not all from his family, otherwise, Spencer Matthews wouldn't be on Made in Chelsea, Ski the Slope, Dive the Dive, father, Wank the Wank. Their father doesn't believe, all credit to him, their so father how the doesn't fuck believe is he in 37 over living money? in a 17 million pound house. Roger me I that. Think he's an Riddle me that. Not Roger, no, Roger. <laughs> Roger can stay out of this. Roger is a verb, is a very different thing. Roger me and riddle that. Also, I've always wondered who the eponymous Roger was that shagging was I named think it's after. Probably Roger Moore, R.I.P. Oh, circling back nicely. On to a slightly heavier topic. Anyone who follows me on Instagram or Twitter might be familiar, or they might be familiar with this story independently because it certainly had a huge reach. A 20-year-old Danish model called Ulrika Hoyer, who is not a household name, but she is a very successful model. She's the face of Chloe. She's worked for big brands like Celine. um, And she Instagrammed a picture of herself with the story that she had been fired from the Louis Vuitton show in Kyoto in Japan for being too bloated. Anyway, she tells the story at great length of when she went to the fitting and how she's fired and how she's sent home. And just for clarification, she is five foot ten and she weighs seven and a half stone. And she was told that she is too fat. So much respect for her, I think, for... um coming out and saying this I, I, th- she, in, I read an interview with her somewhere maybe it was your interview Panda, <laughs> where she said I may lose my job for doing this but you know this may that may be the last job I ever did but I don't care she said this might be my last ever job but I don't want to work like this anymore because I said and I said but, I, yes, mean, fucking I mean I, inter- I interviewed her and a small segment of the interview appeared in the times but I put a lot of the kind of outtakes in the comment section of my Instagram because she was so interesting and a casting director called James Scully who has become known as a massive whistleblower he called out two casting directors for Balenciaga after they treated their models in kind of subhuman conditions and they got fired from Balenciaga he is so brave and passionate Mm, about mm. fair conditions for models. He was also incredibly interesting about our view of models full stop because one, I'm not going to give too much context, but one man who was perhaps relevant to the piece I wrote said to me, yeah, but what's the new story in this? All models ran a exit, right? And that is exactly what is so fucking wrong. Mm. These models do not start anorexic some of them might but a lot of them start age 15 before they've gone through puberty they then go through puberty age 18 and their body changes that the encouragement of casting directors or model agents or designers you know it's a whole a whole process that is something that then can become encouraged by then and as James said 
eating disorders have not always been endemic in this industry. He said, when I started in 1983, it was not a thing. I started when Cindy and Christy and Linda and Naomi were coming up and not one of them had an eating disorder and they would have told us to fuck off if we, mm. you know, had said that. And he said that's why Instagram influencers are doing so well now because they have, and the Instagram girls, the Victoria's Secret Angels, they have that still very slim but athletic. They don't look ill, these girls. They have that athletic no, body healthier. type yeah. of those kind of Amazonian models and that's what the public wants to see it's been proved my friend Lou Stoppard who's an editor and a curator she said time and time again studies have proved that an underweight 17 year old does nothing for the consumer so why is this still perpetuated the the modelling industry will always be aspirational but how do we divorce aspiration from mega skinniness and how also I would like to say how do we respond to size across the board because I had several people commenting on my Instagram and I didn't reply to any of it telling me that I couldn't write the piece I shouldn't be writing the piece or I'm a hypocrite because I am slim and that to me was an extraordinary thing it drives to me write. Matt you come up against this a lot and it drives but me but I also really... thought is it better if I'm slim having never had genuinely if I had had one I would say I've never had an eating disorder in my life there is nothing unhealthy about me I'm a size 8 to a 10 I'm 5 foot 4 I'm you know slim but completely healthy is it better if I am slim and don't write a piece about stuff I believe in that needs to change or is it better that I'm slim and I do write a piece that resonates about stuff that needs to change like pick whatever you think's right and if you pick the former then you're a twat to be honest yeah I completely agree and I think it's what's difficult as you dive into these industry problems and I'd like your take on this is that I just feel like in the fashion industry there's this endless passing of the buck where yes. agents say it's not them casting directors say it's not them yeah. fashion editors Alexandra Shulman famously says it's not her you know who is it then and I think it annoys me because the fashion industry isn't governed by this sort of omnipotent godlike force that no one can capture or no one can reason with they make clothes, it seem like so they do the clothes don't appear sample sizes don't appear just like a natural disaster and it's like oh well so true. but who I mean as far as I'm concerned there must be someone or something perpetuating this well Ulrika said um so James said in the 80s it used to be that the dress fit the girl you know, you, you made the dress look great on the girl. Arika said, you now fit the girl to the dress. So if you have a size zero dress sample and the girl is too small, no problem. They make it smaller. She's mm. not a problem. If you have a size zero dress and the girl is too big, the girl is the problem, not the dress. So it's the designer. There's a shift. Like you say, everyone passed the buck. I don't know at Louis Vuitton. Um, they haven't made a comment. I mean, Paris has regulations about weight and BMI, which is body mass index and all sorts of things like that. I think people will cheat to get around it. Um, I know that James is hoping to come up with some sort of... Regulation. Yeah, regulation. It's so damaging on three counts. It's damaging to the individual herself, the model herself Mm -hmm. or himself. Um, And then there's also the damage done on public consciousness and what we deem attractive and what we Mm -hmm. conflate with aspirational. Um, But there are also the girls who emulate it. And this is something that's... I feel very strongly about because it personally affected me. You know, there was two years of my life where I just didn't eat and I was the person who, fine, the fashion industry didn't start that and I don't want all the blame to be loaded on the fashion industry for girls' eating disorders. You know, it's a commonly held theory from eating disorder experts that it's it's a very complex disease and it's not as simple as girls looking at magazines and saying, I want to be like her. But I do think it's a disease that is perpetuated and exacerbated by that culture. And I was, you know, I'm ashamed to admit it now, I was 
that girl who was on Pro Anna websites. And do you know what was on those websites? Pictures of those girls. And the thing that she says is she says she keeps seeing over and over again these girls that she says, I don't know how they're standing, I don't know how they're functioning. Their skin changes colour, she said. And, you know, the reality of what not eating for a long period of time or dramatically reducing your nutrients or calorific intake, it's not pretty, you know, and it has, speaking to someone who's, you know, still has knock-on effects Mm. for a long time Mm. afterwards, even if you recover, Mm. and it affects your digestion it affects your fertility it's if it's, it's so serious it's so so serious i think we have problems with all sizes because this is also interestingly the week that there was a new stat that 63 percent of british adults are overweight and i read this brilliant article which again i tweeted on the hilo's twitter um from this health expert saying that the way that we the narrative around obesity has got to change you know shaming doesn't work especially given that this is often an economic issue it's a class issue um it's not that it's poor people are thin and rich people are fat like it used to be Mm. you know it is generally a situation that has become reversed Um, and I actually think how polarised it has become that there are people that you have fat shaming and then at the other end of the scale also this kind of fetishisation but also untempered criticism for for people that are thin I don't think the way for us to get healthy models is to tell fat people they're disgusting because you know everyone's got different fucking metabolisms as this doctor said until we figure out how metabolisms work until they work out how metabolism works you can't give any blanket advice because you know I could eat something and you could eat something and it could affect our bodies in completely different ways but on the flip side I feel like this is something that is also happening at the other side and like like you say this you know this is not the first time that I have been called a hypocrite for inhabiting my natural body I've been the same shape for 15 years mm. my weight has changed by about three pounds mm. give or take either side you know so it's 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 more a conversation that needs to happen around size full stop I think and that the emphasis should not so much be on the silhouette but on on the health Completely. someone someone could be a size eight and look very healthy you know, not bony, not underweight, not gaunt. Someone else could be a size eight and look perfectly ill. But also, look, I've been overweight. I've been, I've been, o- I've been overweight, and I've been someone who that has been a problem for them as well. When I had, you know, big problems with anxiety and emotional sides. eating, and let me tell you, it was just as fucking hard. It was just as hard having that as a problem I'm fr- as it was not eating. The funny thing is, is being slim myself. People often say stuff to me as if we're co-conspirators, thinking that I'll be like, oh yeah fat people lazy or whatever mm. what a lot of people don't realize is that I'm from a family that massively struggles with their weight mm. I'm the only person in my family that hasn't had real struggles s- struggles mm. with being overweight and that means that I really have seen this issue in a different way to mm. you but I have seen it in both sides I have witnessed it firsthand my whole life that when you're a size 18, you can't shop on the high street. That, you know, you're conscious of eating too much in public because people will think you're a greedy bitch, whereas there's something kind of adorable about someone skinny eating a donut. Mm. It's a conversation that I think, I mean, in the issues of time, we won't carry on. <laughs> but it's a conversation we could both yeah. talk a lot more on. Mm. But I think Ulrika is a whistleblower and that conversation needs to be had, but it is part of a much bigger conversation, I think, about size. 
Here's something we never thought we'd be discussing on our podcast and proof that it really is a veritable mixed bag with something for everyone. (laughs) Shares nipple pasties. Is it pasties or pasties? (laughs) It's pasties. Good to have some clarification there. So, for anyone who missed the story, the Sun reports share st- another sentence. Never thought I'd say share stunned fans at the Billboard Music Awards by performing in a raunchy silver stage costume, which left little to the imagination. The pop veteran, seventy-one, wore nipple pasties. pasties. Oh, pasties! <laughs> under a barely there Diamante dress for her turn on stage at the prize giving, and wowed as she performed her hit track "Believe." in the skimpy outfit. So, guess you had something uh, to say on this, Pandora. It's the man whose <laughs> name we do not mention on the podcast anymore. He's like the Voldemort of the Hilo. Um, but that man said on Good Morning Britain, come on, Cher, for goodness sake, love. She's a grandmother. For goodness sake, put it away. Grow old gracefully. Firstly, I have an image of you now going to a Delice de Pan or whatever they're called, <laughs> Delice de France, saying... Um, I'd like a nipple pasty, my good man. Um, no danger. Oh, the happening. thought of a nipple pasty. Oof, make my boobs hurt. Pasties. Have you worn them? Yeah, pasties? the thing is, like, you can see through. Um, you can see them through. I'd almost rather see the nipple than see the, like, silicon. Why have you worn them to stop nipples poking out? Uh, of, of I've worn dress. them where I'm wearing a dress when you can't wear a bra. And actually, I have seen a new light to them last night when I was wearing a dress without a bra, is that you really chafe your nipples. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually find them quite painful to wear as well. Um, Why are they painful? Because when you pull them off, Ooh. it's like your nipple wants to come with it. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it's like pulling a plaster off your nip. <laughs> um, so what this comes down to, so the debate that rages on, is age and sexuality and the relationship betwixt the two. So women, including Madonna and Helen Mirren, have spoken at length about this. And actually, when I interviewed the actress Jennifer Connolly. I think it was last year, she spoke about turning 40 and the, the, her roles had become more binary. So she had kind of aged 10 years overnight. And it's a bit like that whole idea of the Madonna and the whore, except with age mm. and sexuality. It's like Snow White and the witch. I don't know if I've mixed my fairy tales there. <laughs> but, and then Helen Mirren said something really interesting in 2015. She said... I always think of this scientific survey carried out amongst American college kids in the 60s. They were all happy to talk about their own sex life. Then they were asked about their parents' sex life and, oh God, they were horrified. The young always want to feel as if they're the ones to do everything first. But naturally, it's been done before. I love that. Um, well, this has always angered me, the way, particularly in this country, I think, the way that women are told that they are, after the age of 40 or 50, basically invisible. I think America's worse. Hollywood's worse. I think England is particularly ageist. I think it's a particular problem here. I think, you know, you can't dress a certain way, you can't be sexual, you can't drink, you can't be dirty, you can't be badly behaved. You know, you're expected basically to put on a cardigan and shuffle off <laughs> to fucking Bournemouth and just sit eating Werther's Originals and watching daytime TV. To all our listeners in Bournemouth, Donna says it with affection. <laughs> and I think it angers me more as I get older because the inevitability of that invisibility becomes... It, you know, it's it's coming for all of us. You know, there was a time where I thought I'd be young and hot forever, wearing a crop top for you know, jumping around and being cute at the bar to get free drinks forever. But I'm very aware that that is going to run out, and it's difficult when we're in this society where women are told constantly to condition themselves for this male gaze and this approval, and then you hit forty, and not only is that completely taken from you, but you're also told you're not really interesting, you don't have stuff to say, you're a boring old dear, and I think. 
something that really affected me, I talk about this a lot, but it's the most powerful play I ever saw was a play called Linda at the Royal Court a couple of years ago, written by Penelope Skinner. And you can actually, you can buy the play now and it's really worth reading and it had a very profound effect on me that examined how a woman getting older and how society viewed her differently. And there's this one line in it that I always think of where she says, when I was younger and I'd go to car mechanics and I didn't understand how my car worked, they thought I was adorable and flirted with me. Now when I go, they roll their eyes. God, amazing. Amazing encapsulation. Yeah. What do you think of the school of thought that says that share wearing pasties or, you know, a 70-year-old in hot pants, can't think of a 70-year-old off the top of my head. Oh, you know, um, who's that bad, baddie winkle, that granny who wears <laughs> yeah. hot pants. What do, you, what do you make of the whole idea that they are a triumph for older women and that they are championing? I think they are. I think they are because I don't think that what they're it's not that this is the model this is the bastion of what older female sexuality should be but I think first of all the thing is with Cher that people forget is that this is she has all this is a part of her identity this sexuality that sort of wigs and glitter that ostentation has always been a part of who she is and why should she abandon that now and I think In my feminism, it's something I really tussle with about whether sexuality for a woman can ever be used as an empowering thing. Um, Yeah, I agree with that. I expect they're right, but for me, it's not necessarily... I think it's case by case, and I think in Cher's case, the woman is a renowned and respected actor and artist. She's a musician, she's a philanthropist, she's an outspoken liberal. Her sexuality doesn't define her. It's certainly not just for the male gaze. And it's one facet of her identity and fucking good on her for saying, no, I'm not going to shuffle away and hide that because it might cause you offence. I don't like the way fancying an older woman is seen as alternative. Like, I, I kind of feel like I see and hear a lot of young men say that they really fancy Helen Mirren to try and sound, like, subversive or mm. worse, like they're to some really cool feminist it's like do you actually fancy her or them or is it just so kind of farcical that you think you'll sound really alt Mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be alt it's not like it's weird to fancy Brad bloody Pitt who's 50 no or also lest we forget Iggy Pop who is the same age as Cher (laughs) who has not had a top on in 10 years and I'm sure Piers Morgan wouldn't have been offended by that he has not had a top on in 10 years Mr Bates It's time for Ask the Hilo. Um, We, because of a rather top-heavy but vital um, opening segment, we only have time for one question today, but we've got some amazing other questions, which we promise... It's just getting longer and longer, this bloody show. We keep keep saying, let's do a really long... Like today, we said, let's do a really long question time. And then here we are, an hour and a half later, both dripping in sweat. so hot. You get to go home now. I have to go on and talk to people, and they're going to be like... Wow, have you just bathed in your own stink? Anyway, so here's a question. Hello, Dolly and Pandora. Two years ago, I got engaged to my boyfriend, who I was completely in love with. He was my best friend. He made me happier than I've ever been. But for some reason, during the course of our engagement, I invented problems. I worried constantly about all the things that could prove problematic in our future. He was so wonderful and supportive that he helped me seek medical help and looked into a therapist for me to see. Despite all this, I somehow managed to mess everything up. We called off our wedding three months before it was meant to go ahead. It's been two years now, and I'm still not over it. I miss him every day. I want him more than anything, but he's been very clear that he doesn't want me back. He says he can't go back to how he felt. Do you think there's anything I can possibly do to convince him that I'll love him forever and I can make him happy? Or is it a lost cause? Please help. Oh, God, it's very devastating to read. I feel for you so much. Panda messaged me and said you were welling up when you read it. I just can't even imagine 
what it must feel like to desperately love someone that you've lost because of involuntary mind activities. You know, the mind is a... From from what it sounds like, you're Mm. obviously very, very vulnerable and perhaps struggling with mental health issues. And I think that's what's so devastating is it, it clouded your love for him, which was never in any doubt. But I can understand why for him it was too much to bear. I'm going to say something I think she might find quite difficult to hear, but it's something that someone said to me. This was a very difficult thing that a professional said to me once, and it was hard for me to hear. No one on this planet owes you your happiness other than you. In your longer letter, you say that you're someone who overthinks and who's very anxious. There may be a possibility that this is the great love of your life and you've lost him... I would say what could be more likely is that if you're someone who is feeling unsettled or anxious or distressed, that in your head you have conflated him with your happiness. And oh, yeah, that's very true. I were you, I would maybe yeah, look a, a little deeper at what might be missing there because whatever, that void might be him, but the void might be deeper and no man will ever be able to fill that. And if if I were you, if you can afford it, I would try and make it a financial priority to keep going to therapy. That's what I would say. And then you might get more clarity on it after that. I think, for what it's worth, on whether or not you'll get him back, um, I feel like I have witnessed people go back to once destructive situations and make them constructive and have a future. Mm. But it's difficult. Couples go to the edge of darkness and back. They do, but I don't have many who manage to make it work long term. I would say that the odds are against you and I'm not saying that to say give up, stop loving him, but that having gone through what it sounds like you've gone through, if my husband had called off the wedding three months, even if it was because I knew he was going through inner turmoil, I don't know if my heart could take that again. Mm -hmm. So what you must... I know it's not really a balm to soothe you, but what you must think is think of his position. He probably just... He just can't put himself there he just can't do it. And sometimes in life, I think there's that really, really devastating realisation that love is not enough. Who's to say that he doesn't still love you? But it's it's just an impossible situation, perhaps. And the other thing to remember as well, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm being too cruelly pragmatic because I understand what it feels like, you know, to feel to feel that love for someone and how awful it feels when you feel like you've lost it and somehow you're to blame. I don't think you are. I think don't underestimate your feelings at that time they wouldn't have come from completely nowhere um but the other thing is that I remember breaking up a relationship when I was young and he was like a big love of my life and I said to my mum what if I regret this and she said you might did you yeah no I didn't I did well I don't know maybe I will maybe at 60 I will that's what you know love is a risk and if you get to a point where you break up with someone and you're like Ugh, oh never regret that then it means you really let the relationship rumble on for too long anyway <laughs> I've been absolutely devastated by everyone I broke up with and I can categorically tell you that I would have been a terrible disaster if I'd married any of them well there we go that's um, a tale of hope for you there but we're sending you love and we hope that you find some inner peace on yeah, it yeah and perhaps find someone else to love if it's not to be with him 
Thank you very much to everyone who listened to episode 12 of The Hilo. We are having a week off next week because Dolly has a big book deadline. <laughs> we won't talk about it too much while she sweats because even Because Dolly's more. got to uh, watch the last two series of Downton No, there is a genuine reason. I wouldn't, let, I wouldn't let her win with that one. So we have a week off next week. We will be back the week after. Please don't forget to tweet us at The Hilo Show or email us thehiloshow at gmail.com. <laughs> Thank you very much to Acast, our wonderful podcast platform, for letting us record in your charming but ultimately sweatboxy of a studio. <laughs> it is very kind. And thank you to Lauren Benstead for the funky jingle. Bye-bye. Bye. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.